Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Backer, European rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale, Thea Chapsalis, and John Navruzzi. Before we get before getting into the discussion today, I just wanted to quickly remind you to hit the subscribe button so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. And as ever, if you have any questions for our Bondcasters, please email them to us at bondcast.natwest.com. All right, then, guys, we've got a lot to catch up on, or at least since I last did a Bondcast. I think I was saying to Giles yesterday that I can't believe we waited months for rates to break out of the tiny ranges that they were trading in and I go on holiday for two weeks and buns move 30 basis points but uh, there we go I'm sure there's still more fun to be had for the rest of the year so uh, let's get straight into the discussion I'll start with you this week Theo because I think um, well certainly on the inflation side the UK has been well the biggest mover over the past couple of days and and that's certainly where the big story has been that's been driving global markets so um, um, perhaps you can just give us an update on on what's really been going on there and, and what you're thinking about that. I think, first of all, we need to uh, to look at the main driver of that upside in inflation. And this is really commodity prices, in particular, natural gas uh, and electricity as well. In the UK, around 40% of the electricity is produced through natural gas. So it is very, very relevant. Now, in the UK, specifically, um, because of supply disruptions, you have natural gas prices that have appreciated a lot more than in other markets. To put things into context, in the US over the last three months, natural gas prices appreciated by around 60%. But in the UK, they appreciate by around 160%. So the, the, the magnitude is totally different. So what does it mean for the market? Um, we talk about a market that needs to press it in. We talk about uh, substantially flatter RPI curves, um, a lot of buying at the front of the curve, a lot of widening. Um, it is obviously marked relative to commodities, but also what becomes more difficult is to estimate the second order effects. So it's not just that higher natural gas prices lead to a higher part in the RPI basket that is higher, but also they've got broader implications and this is i think the 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 tricky part the one that um most investors are are puzzled with um in any case what we do expect is we do expect volatility in the inflation market to be particularly high because of that commodity driven uncertainty but also we think that if once we see that commodity spike normalize a little bit then obviously we talk about a steeper rpi curve but also we talk a bit about um, you know, more stable conditions. But this is, may be a story uh, for another podcast right now. Sounds like we could go uh, into quite a lot of detail in that one. So <clears throat> without doing that then, how has the curve reacted to, to this kind of news and, and the latest stories? Yeah, so the interesting part is that uh, the market um, has reacted with a steeper curve um, and we've seen Steeper conventional curve, not an RPI curve, has reacted with steeper curve. Um, we've seen that at the same time, what we find particularly interesting is, you know, the, the front of the curve has also moved higher. And, and, and to be fair, you can make the argument that higher inflation probably will create a big impetus for the BOE to tighten. Uh, however, we do think, and, and actually this week's comment from Governor Bailey show that the Bank of England, they understand that if it is a commodity-led pickup in inflation, that this is not necessarily 
asking for uh, immediate technique. So in our view, there is value at the front of the Sonia curve. We think that um, rates there are high. Um, the volatility that we got this week and a bit of a sell-off that we got, especially on Tuesday, we think that that's, you know, that, that's an opportunity for investors to be uh, involved. Um, and we think that if we were to choose between the front and the back end, we think that there is more value just um, at the front end. Because the back end, the back end may, may have to reprice lots of different things and um, may have to reprice changes in supply, may have to reprice, for example, um, you know, maybe structurally or, or, or higher inflation for longer. But in our view, the fact that we had, you know, natural gas prices or lack of HGV drivers or, you know, all that uh, disruption, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Bank of England uh, is going to tighten more anytime soon. So what about thinking about nominals then? Because, you know, one of the, the big kind of headlines earlier this week was that 10-year gilts had risen above 1% for the first time since the pandemic began. Um, now, avid uh, listeners and, and readers of your um, notes will know that that 1% target in 10-year gilts has, uh, well, that has been your target for, for some time, really. So how are you thinking about gilt yields from here then? Do you still think there's further to go or are you um, looking at pulling back on, on some of those shorts now that they have reached that 1% target? Yeah, I guess uh, to be perfectly fair, the the headlines are making it a bit easier for us. Um, uh, what what has happened is there's been also a benchmark change. So in reality, if if somebody was really to be picking into the details, they would figure out that uh, you know that benchmark change uh, makes yields look a little bit higher. Uh, in any case, there's been a considerable rise in yields, and yes, uh, thank you. I mean, it's the one percent has been has been our target. We did not expect it to be reached right after the meeting, so we expected it to happen in a slower fashion. But again, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you cannot predict uh, exactly how markets will evolve. Now, thinking forward, um, we, we, we are looking at the market that can be a bit more of a sell-off potentially, but again, the, the, any sell-off we think that is going to be uh, limited. So the, the UK market um, has performed weak and the UK market has priced in a lot of policy tightening already. Um, but the UK market will probably have to price in a reduction in issuance that will come uh, at the end of October. So this is something that we expect to be announced with the, with the budget. So um, in terms of direction uh, for 10-year yields, we think that yes, it can be, call it a 10 basis point, uh, more 10, 15 basis points of a sell-off. But it's, we, we think that the, the main sell-off has already happened. So probably we'll look at if it goes the other way, probably to, to, to fade it and go the other way around. But the area where we think that uh, is a lot more juice is really the is really the front end because if for whatever reason, the political landscape and the economic landscape deteriorates, then we talk about, you know, um, a lot of buying at the front end of the curve, which, which, which is very, very, uh, you know, which, which is very high. The other thing that we need to say is obviously that the, the linkage between markets is, uh, is, is, is very strong. And obviously a lot in the EK will happen depending on what uh, we get in the US and the Euro area. Which was a very nice segue into the Euro area there. <laughs> so Charles, over to you because you know Europe, European rates have, have participated fully in, in this sell-off as well. Do you, is this just being driven by repricing of inflation expectations just in like in the UK or is there something else going on that, that you think is driving rates higher? 
I think most of the factors that Theo has been talking about also apply to the euro area, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, perhaps in a slightly less um, <laughs> less spectacular way, but I think that, you know, that the ingredients are, are all there. Now, listen, I think um, I, I'd actually push back a little bit on the, this idea that uh, Europe has fully participated. Actually, I think think that it's um, it hasn't participated as much as I would have liked or I would have perhaps expected and you know I do, I do think again I mean this is some it's a bit, a bit of an ongoing theme this year you know I, I think that expectations about where European rates should be are, are just too heavily weighed down by the experience of, 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 of recent years and I think that ex inflation expectations you know, coming back in the way that they are even if we are still in the base case talking about transitory inflation which you know, I think most people are you know that's still a pretty big difference to, um, to kind of 18 months ago where there was no inflation of any kind transitory or not to be honest with you and now even compared to just three or six months ago when you know, people started spotting I don't know some upside risks to inflation and and then there was this whole ba debate about is it transitory is it not well you know you list all the reasons that you think inflation uh, is on the high side at the moment individually they they all look pretty transitory but they start piling up in a way where you know you're looking at much higher inflation than you thought was likely and quite you know quite it's going to be more you know, higher for a more, a more extended period than you thought was likely and that does clearly increase risks, um, particularly when I mean, we've just seen in today's data again, I mean, you know, Spanish inflation massively over <laughs> overshot again on, en on energy prices, but that's going to be sustained for, for a while. And the backdrop, the, ma the macro backdrop we saw from the, um, from the uh, commission surveys is still very robust. So you know, I think that you know, the this idea that there is no inflation and will never be any inflation in Europe is something that we perhaps need to start reconsidering in a bigger way. So, and there you go, a call to arms. <laughs> well, I think you've answered, or listeners should hopefully be able to infer from what you've been saying, the answer to my next question, but I'm just gonna ask it anyway to give you the opportunity to, to spell it out. But that's, so we think that there's further to go then in this sell-off for European rates. And, and if so, how much further, what kind of level in say 10 year bonds are we looking at for the end of the year? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that this continues. Uh, I think it'll be fueled by European factors and global factors. And I think that you know, some of the sort of background risks that people have in mind that are maybe continuing to weigh on uh, on, on yields will will dissipate. And the, you know, the, those are largely global risks, to be honest with you. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm still talking about zero for 10 year uh, bonds for the end of the year. Uh, that as uh, and anyone who was listening to us earlier in the year, now that's a little bit of a downgrade because obviously we, you know, we rallied very strongly over the summer. And you know, I mean, to call for a much higher level than that, I think you know, these sorts, even these sorts of levels of volatility would be um, you know, sort of overplaying your hand. But I think the direction of travel very much still upwards in yield. 
nice to be um, doing a podcast where they're, they're going in the right direction for once. Well, I know they have been for the last couple of weeks, but I missed out on doing the pod for those weeks. And over the summer, it felt like we were always doing the pod when they were going the wrong way. So um, suddenly zero percent doesn't seem so far off in 10 years. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier then about, um, you know, kind of upgrades to outlooks and things like that. And just um, quickly ask about um, Sintra, because obviously that was the kind of main event um, in the Euro area or one of, you know, the kind of risk events that we were thinking about at the beginning of the summer. And, and the guards opening remarks yesterday, we're recording this on Wednesday, so yesterday. What did you think about them? Was there any kind of fireworks, any key takeaways, or was it really just sort of business as usual and, and come back in December? Fireworks, there were not. Um, no, from Lagarde it, uh, in particular, I mean, to be honest with you, she... She's, she's a little bit more aloof than Draghi was. Um, no, so you know, she, she rarely is the one that you would particularly look for to, 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 to give you know, a strong message about, you know, in, in, in terms of you know, any difference of you know, direction that the, the ECB might be, might be taking. Um, Nonetheless, you know, we've had a big sell-off in, in rates and you know, we, it's relatively soon after they changed their, their guidance about what they were going to do with, uh, with QE with this sort of moderate slow de- uh, slowing in the, in the pace of QE, which, by the way, we actually haven't particularly seen in the data, but that's a different story. Um, you know, so it might have been a reasonable opportunity for her to you know, just refine the message a little bit, and, uh, and and if she wanted to, to just say, listen, um, no, we're not very happy with the level of volatility that we see in um, in markets at the moment. Now, that's a message that we've heard before from the ECB. It wouldn't have been completely outlandish to expect that, but she didn't at all. Um, no, essentially, all we got from her was. Uh, no, we're broadly satisfied with the way that things are going. Um, no. I mean, reading between the lines, rates should be a little bit higher. It's all kind of attuned with fundamentals. They quite like um, inflation expectations in the markets continuing to rise and so on. So no real effort to to push back on what we've been seeing at all from her. And as for the rest of the conference, all I can say is that I have an inordinate amount of reading, as do you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> All right, then, Dan, over to you in, in the US, where um, I guess, well, the focus has always been on monetary policy, but there's been a little bit more focus um, in recent days and weeks on the fiscal side and, and the political headlines. So could you just update us on, on where we stand on that and, and what's going on in Congress at the moment and, and what's our take on, on all of that? Sure, yeah, it, it really has been a, a jam-packed week with headlines back and forth, but I think for the near term and perhaps this week, we're recording on this on Wednesday. So by the time this is released, we might even have a couple more developments. But uh, for politics, really, there's three pillars that are around this uh, fiscal, uh, fiscal dynamics in Congress. The first being the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And I'm starting with that because that, in theory, should be the easiest one to get through. It, it has already passed the House. Uh, it has already passed the Senate. And it pretty much is ready to pass the House. But the thing is, the progressive side of the Democratic Party wants to hold it back a little bit uh, in order to get the, to get the, the bipartisan, not the bipartisan, the partisan 
you know, democratic only reconciliation bill, which would have a lot more of social infrastructure spending in it. You know, the number touted is about three and a half trillion. But the vote for the bipartisan bill was uh, was scheduled for Monday. Now we got pushed back to Thursday, and who knows? Maybe it gets pushed back again to next week uh, because the you know the, there's there's a faction in the, uh, in the Democrats that have all this leverage, and they're using it right now. Our base case for that is that it will eventually uh, either pass this week or, if not, uh, shortly after, and it will become a law. Remember that, it, like I said, it has already passed the Senate, so there's no going back and getting it carved up again. And the fiscal impact about is like 550 billion in new spending spread over multiple years. So it shouldn't be really too heavy as far as financing goes. I mean, the Treasury itself is so overfunded with the current rate of coupon issuance, which will update uh, listeners and readers in, in, in due time before the November refunding. But so that's number one. Number two is the Democratic only, the larger infrastructure bill, which is supposed to go through the reconciliation package, but it is a really a tough one. It has been causing a lot of rifts within the Democratic Party. The bill itself isn't really finished. Honestly, there's, there's this, this framework for how to pay for it is yet to be released. And as a reminder to our, uh, to our listeners, the initial size of the package was touted to be something around three and a half trillion. So if this gets the Senate, which unlike the other bill, uh, it hasn't passed the Senate yet, it is likely to get stripped apart there. You know, we, we think if, if it manages to get through, uh, Senate, it will be probably about half its size, something like $2 trillion, uh, once the Senate's done with it. So we expect that one to pass as well. But this is, uh, this is not this week's issue. It's, it seems like it's going to be later on this year. However, we do see we do, our, our base case was something like $2 trillion of spending uh, with $1.5 trillion of pay-fors, tax increases, and, and so on. And finally, the one that we, we have been focusing a lot more on is the, the government funding slash the debt ceiling issue. Two separate, two separate problems. The government, the government funding is due this week because if Congress doesn't pass a bill this week, government will go into a shutdown. Uh, the bill ha- that, that the House sent to Senate included the so-called stopgap bill, included language on the debt ceiling suspension as well. As expected, Republicans shot that down. Pre- they seem to be pretty united in giving this kind of advantage to the Democratic Party uh, to, to be able to uh, suspend the debt ceiling as opposed to just raise it by a specific number. And we have seen a lot of back and forth on, on that. This, is, this has been the issue where there's a ton of divide. But we do think we're going to get like a stopgap bill now that's going to get sent back without the debt ceiling language, get past the so-called continuing resolution, passes without a problem, and we will avert a shot, shutdown. That seems to be uh, tomorrow's business or Thursday's business when uh, at the time of recording, we don't know the out- outlook, but it seems likely to be the, to be the, you know, the modal case should, should, uh, should happen as planned. And finally, the debt ceiling, that is an issue where, you know, it, it is, it, it's going to, we're pushing to the last minutes. Uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen sent a letter to Congress saying that Treasury has, by their estimates, about 18th of October, October before they default. Understandable pessimism by the Treasury, really, they want to force some urgency. And Democrats, you know, want to hold off to see if they can, they can get a, a suspension as opposed to a raising. As a reminder, suspension would come with uh, a regular order. It has to go to Senate. It has to get 10 Republicans or like the 60 votes total uh, to be suspended for a specific time period, say the end of next year. And a Democratic-only solution would be with the reconciliation process, which is 
50 votes only, like a major, simple majority, but it requires a specific dollar amount. So you have the headlines that will scream that Democrats increased the debt, the national debt by three trillion, for example, which is not something they want. But eventually, we think they will have to go down that path because uh, it's better than stop. You know, it's better than social security checks not going on, and uh, it does seem like, despite what uh, Senator Chuck Schumer said. It, it, that's a non-starter. It looks like it will be a starter. We think it seems like an early October problem again. So next week and onwards before the 18th, which uh, which Yellen said, but uh, it is really it's it's a bit of a pickle right now. <laughs> okay, so there really was a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for that. I'm glad you're covering that and not me. Um, so it sounds like there's a, a fair amount to kind of keep monitoring over the next few weeks, and I'm sure something that we will discuss next week as well. Um, so. Changing gear a little bit and just flipping back to the monetary policy side, um, we've obviously had um, the Fed meeting uh, the other week, and now we've had a fairly decent amount of Fed speakers scheduled this week. Have we learned anything new from those Fed speakers so far, or uh, not, no real change from, from the message from last week? So... There has there have been a lot, and I guess one of the notable standouts was Chairman Powell and, uh, and Secretary Yellen speaking to the Senate Banking Committee. That was uh, that was on Tuesday, and it was an interesting one. If not for the you know back and forth, let's say between uh, Senator Warren and Yellen calling him a dangerous man, saying he's going to oppose his uh, renomination, which is becoming you know more of a pressing issue for the Biden administration. They have to make a move on that. Uh, in, we could see him being renominated again. He seems like the he seems like the kind of continuity choice as well. And uh, Secretary Yellen is reported to have backed him, but it just shows that there are rifts within the party. And we heard from you know, Governor uh, Governor Brainard this week too, who is considered to be uh, the most likely nominee if if Powell is not reappoint uh, renominated. And she definitely was a lot more dovish as is known to be on tapering. It seemed like the messaging we got from her was that she doesn't think the substantial progress has been as much met, so to say, compared to Powell. So we do get this feeling that if, if the administration decides to go with her, the, the Fed could have a little bit more of a dovish tilt. But other than that, all of the messages were kind of consistent from what we heard. You know, People kind of came out saying, this is where we see the doubts and just sort of reinforcing what we got from the meeting I guess the one of the the sort of I had I guess uh, officials that jumped ahead was was Bullard who basically said we got us uh, they got to start reducing the balance sheet right after tapering it's not not really realistic at this stage but it narrative like that causes the market to overly focus on what's next and it is one of the reasons we think the belly has room to sort of underperform a little bit a little bit more and but like I said, the focus in your term should be on politics and not so much on uh, not so much on the well. I mean, we can never discard Fed speakers in some you know sensational statements, but the October jobs number now seems to be a little less important than what it used to be compared to the pre-FOMC and uh, the politics should politics headlines should dominate the next two weeks. 
That makes sense. All right, great. Well, still loads to talk about on both fronts then over the next few weeks. Um, thank you all for joining me this week. I think that's probably all we've got time for. Um, but just wanted to remind our listeners that if you liked today's episode, please hit the like button to show your appreciation and click subscribe so you can listen to the latest episodes as soon as they're available. And if you would like to pose a question to any of our Bondcasters, please email us at bondcast at natwest.com. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.